I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing Chinese and Russian competition for influence in Central Asia. Central Asia has historically been seen by Moscow as within its security sphere. In recent years, China's economic influence in Central Asia has increased enormously. To what extent do Chinese and Russian interests converge or diverge? To help us unpack these issues, we're speaking with Dr. Teresa Sabonis Health, Professor of National Security Strategy at the National War College. Dr. Sabonis Health's research focuses on climate change policies, post-Soviet energy and environmental issues, regional and international energy trade, and the politics of electricity. Thanks for joining us today, Teresa. It's my pleasure. The region of Central Asia encompasses many countries uh, with historical ties, of course, to both China and Russia, either through trade routes such as the Silk Road or uh, politically where much of the region was part of the former Soviet Union. How do Central Asian states view Russia and China today? And what role do they want Russia and China to play in Central Asia? The soft power of Russia is much more dramatic in the region. Um, In three of the states, Russian is still one of the official state languages. Um, It is still a language used by um, an elite of a certain generation. And you still see um, very strong relationships with Russia. China, on the other hand, is is very much seen as a as a newcomer to the region, um, but it's come in an extraordinary and powerful way. Um, in just one country, for example, in recent years, China's invested uh, about seven hundred twenty million dollars in Tajikistan in infrastructure investments. So while Russia has some of the soft power and the cultural history, China is the economic powerhouse, and China is really what's been more transformative in recent years. Russia has a Eurasia Economic Union, and uh, China, of course, in 2013 put forward the Belt and Road Initiative. And both of these policies are touted as uh, major flagship uh, policies by Moscow and Beijing. Uh, Are the objectives of these plans in Central Asia complementary or competitive? Let me start with explaining the Eurasian Economic Union because it is it is a bit of a puzzle. Um, it is a small group of former Soviet states, and within Central Asia, only Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan are members. There's a possibility that Tajikistan will join, but it's not universal in the region. And the idea is to harmonize legislation to create a larger sort of trade block. It's somewhat modeled on the, on the European Union. But the Eurasian Economic Union came into being only very recently. And there's a bit of buyer's remorse in Central Asia because, of course, Russia's had an economic crisis for as long as the Eurasian Economic Union has been in place. Um, And it magnifies the effect of sanctions to some extent on members of the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, So on the one hand, it creates a harmonization of legislation. It makes it easier to trade across borders. But it doesn't include all the members. By contrast, uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative was kind of already underway before it was given a name. Um, you had the pipelines in place, some of the rail elements were already in place. And so rather than being an acronym in search of an impact, um, the impact of it was already felt before it was named. 
They're actually legally not competitive. Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan were very careful to ensure that in the language of the incorporation of the Eurasian Economic Union, it would not disadvantage any pre-existing trade relationships. In practice, it does to some extent. Legally, it does not. Um, but again, I would characterize what um, the Belt Road Initiative is purely about infrastructure and the Eurasian Economic Union as an attempt to, as, as a legal attempt to create the rules for how trade moves across boundaries. Do Central Asian states feel squeezed between Russia and China? Are they confident that they can extract the most benefits for themselves by playing one off against the other? There's a book about the region with a with a with such a memorable name. I'll, I'll cite it. Um, Andrew Cooley's book, uh, "Great Games: Local Rules." And in this book, he traces how effective the Central Asian heads of state have been in playing China, Russia, and the United States off of each other. So to date, they've been fairly effective at this. Um, I think there will be pressures further down the road. And do you think that? The Chinese see themselves as gaining ground vis-a-vis Russia because they have so much more economic clout? I think that everyone sees them as gaining ground. Um, It's a phrase that Chinese political economists usually apply to America, but I will apply it to Russia. Russia is fairly clearly a predatory hegemon in the region. Um, they've retained a lot of influence. They've retained a very strong presence in the security and the intelligence infrastructure of the Central Asian states. But in terms of economic benefits, there's been very little. In fact, Russia has been very advantaged by the isolation of this region. So China is really opening up a new road. It brings an economic dynamism that the region has been in search of but hasn't seen. Economists have long pointed to the region's struggle with the development trap. Uh, where in landlocked countries experience uh, economic disadvantage as compared to coastal states. Uh, how can the Belt and Road Initiative um, and uh, the Eurasian Economic Union assist with this problem? And does one have advantages over the other? Well, Central Asia, all five nations are landlocked. Um, and what that means is it's necessary to have coordination with neighbors to get any goods across borders. Um, But the five nations have very contentious relations with each other. Um, There's been a period of open economic warfare between Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Um, There were ethnic pogroms in Kyrgyzstan against Uzbeks. So the region itself has been very tense. Um, And in a sense, it's a region that almost needs a leviathan, Um, someone who can impose the rules and, and sort of set expectations of how nations will behave with each other. To an extent, both of these institutions could do that, but I would argue that they're fundamentally different um, because for the Belt Road Initiative, the principal way for landlocked states to escape this trap is to be able to build those ways to other markets. And the ways to other markets simply didn't exist. The ways to other markets that go through Russia um, pre-existed before the collapse of the Soviet Union, and and Russia's been unable or uninterested in strengthening those a lot, and and networks to get out of the pre-existing Soviet era simply didn't exist. There was a big move to identify projects. Um, there was a big move in the, in the 90s to sort of prioritize those projects. Pre-feasibilities were done at the level of the UN and the international community. 
But for the most part, progress was only made on the sort of rules and border issues because it was expensive infrastructure. To a certain extent, the Belt Road Initiative on this territory um, is a brilliant move by China. They took the projects that had already been identified, pre-feasibility, that were known to be desirable, and then it chose among those projects which ones were the most strategically useful. Um, so these projects were long recognized to be important. They just didn't have a patron, if you will. A lot of your work has focused on energy. So let's dig into that a little bit, which, of course, energy is a, is a big priority for China's Central Asia strategy. What has Beijing's um, strategy towards uh, energy projects been in the region? How are they approaching this? And then how have those projects been received by uh, countries in the region? Do we see any kind of a backlash? Uh, uh, Myanmar comes to mind as an example in Southeast Asia where uh, the Chinese had been engaged in this uh, Miyatsun Dam project and there was uh, enormous pushback uh, by the people uh, of Myanmar because of concern about the environmental uh, damage. And the project had been structured in the way that was so beneficial to China and so disadvantaged um, to the people of Myanmar. So is this a similar pattern we've seen in Central Asia, or is it different? It's a little bit different. Uh, let me take as an example uh, the most ambitious project. And although it was extraordinarily ambitious, it's one that um, many people don't really recognize the significance. And that is um, China built an extraordinary overland pipeline from Turkmenistan. Um, there are three lines to this pipeline. It's called the Central Asia China Gas Pipeline. And it moves 55 billion cubic meters a year, which is an extraordinary volume to China. Now, this deal was struck between Turkmenistan and China at a time when the global economic downturn was happening. The only major outlet for Turkmenistan was through Russia. There was a major accident on that pipeline that some in Turkmenistan say Russia deliberately caused, and Russia failed to f repair the line for several months. Um, and they did this because demand for gas was suppressed, and Russia liked to think of Turkmenistan as its swing capacity. Now, Turkmenistan is sleepy and small and landlocked and distant and has the fourth largest proven reserves of natural gas in the world. So it's just this extraordinary opportunity. China had been negotiating for a long time, but during this 2009 period of tensions with Russia, they moved in and began building. And this pipeline has been in place now for a number of years, um, and several components of the pipeline are curious. Um, now, it does run through Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, and in order to ensure that those two states remain invested and interested in the pipeline, both of those nations, which also have gas, feed into that pipeline. And in both states, um, China also helped them build out their natural gas infrastructure for their urban areas, which had never been completed, to give them an incentive to build, to build out more gas. So what you have here are three states. So the transit states are all interested in keeping that supply going. But then China did something else that, as an energy expert, I haven't seen other nations do, and it's curious. Usually when you build a pipeline, you have a consortium, and so all the nations have an agreement about their responsibilities. That's not the way this pipeline was built. 
Each of the three states has a bilateral relationship purely with China and offers a guarantee purely with China about the flow of resources across its territory. Um, What this does is gives each state a stake in continuing the flow, even if their relations with each other become contentious, and it gives China a way to hold each, each state accountable for energy behavior regardless of what else is happening. As I said earlier, in in a way, the nation almost needs a Leviathan approach to cooperation, and and China has done that. Um, So it may, in some ways, disadvantage Turkmenistan, and there is a little bit of language in in the government about maybe we've given China too much room here, and relations with Russia fell apart subsequently, so now China is almost the only buyer of Turkmen gas, which creates other problems. Um, But it also has created, the infrastructure has worked well. China's been a consistent buyer. Um, There's been a lot of dispute about price. The biggest downside, of course, is the thing that we've seen China do everywhere, which is they built the infrastructure in exchange for guarantees of future supply. So Turkmenistan is still paying off the building of the infrastructure and pretty frustrated about when do you ever get capital into the system. To what degree are China and Russia supporting Central Asian countries to develop their domestic capacity to produce electricity? Um, and are these projects promoting sustainable energy production? And, and how, does the, how does increasing the domestic capacity of these countries help further Chinese and Russian goals? Well, first of all, um, both nations have been involved in electricity, but in some rather different ways. Um, a Russian parastatal is part owner of energy of some electricity infrastructure in each of these countries. Um, but what China has done is to go in and identify specific projects that the country thinks are strategically important, like a major transmission line or like some coal-fired power to back up the fact that in, in the wintertime, the hydropower is less available. So what China has done is to go in and take these countries' word of what they need to finish their electricity infrastructure. The reason why this is important for Central Asia and for um, China is that in 2009, the old Soviet grid that connected these five states was abandoned. Um, Uzbekistan deliberately brought it down and refused to bring it back up. So we still see a little bit of trade in electricity among these countries, but the network by which all five of them traded with each other has not been in place for a number of years. And what that's done is particularly disadvantaged the two big hydropowers in the region. Hydropower is the least expensive, but it's only plentiful in spring and summer. So for these nations to, the old Soviet system, maximize the use of hydro when it was available and then sort of had backup thermal when the hydro wasn't available. Um, In the current lack of connectivity, uh, that's been a real problem because Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan have surplus power in the summer and spring that no one wants. Um, And and in the winter, um, they've been prey to all sorts of problems in their relations with with the other neighboring states. Uh, What's ended up happening, and I do credit to some extent the Chinese innovations in the region, is they're slowly starting to put the grid back together. Now that the states are more self-reliant, so they they can't hold each other hostage, they're more willing to talk about the economic advantages of trading. And if they do get the grid back up, that's going to be extremely important to the economies of the two poorest Central Asian states. And it's also going to put a lot more hydro back into the grid. At the same time, China has been involved in building conventional power 
in all of these countries, but it's also been involved in renovation of the old Soviet electricity. So I would say that these states are not yet at a point where they lose a lot of sleep about what we would call sustainable energy, um, but they're getting a lot closer to reliable electricity. China's recently expanded military capacity in the region, particularly um, Tajikistan. And I wonder how Tajikistan has uh, responded uh, to this effort. Uh, we've seen China building up its some bases in other parts of the world, um, the 99-year lease with uh, uh, Sri Lanka and Hambantoto would be one example. Uh, they're in Djibouti. We recently did a podcast on that topic. Uh, so I wonder how Tajikistan um, uh, sees this. Uh, and uh, I also want to uh, talk about uh, whether uh, there is a, a, a potential for broader cooperation uh, based on maybe using this capacity uh, to deal with uh, terrorism in the region. Um, is that something that Beijing and Moscow work, can work on together? Um, and how does the region view that potential for such cooperation? Okay, I'm, I'm glad to, to clarify this a little bit because there's a little bit of confusion. Um, the big base that's being built by China is in Barakshan, which is actually in Afghanistan. But access to the base, it's so difficult. The border that China has with Afghanistan is so impassable that they can only supply it if they involve Tajikistan in the deal. Um, so essentially, um, Tajikistan is going to be able to supply this Chinese base in Afghanistan. Um, but in addition, China is also offering support for 11 new border checkpoints between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. Um, and it has created a new quadrilateral cooperation coordination mechanism. And I, I want to talk about this because Russia has always considered security as its sphere. And in fact, bear in mind that the Russian military presence in Tajikistan is considerable. The largest military base abroad for Russia is in Tajikistan. And they have the lease on that base to 2042. So the Russians don't see themselves as going anywhere anytime soon. So this Chinese military cooperation is cooperation with a major Russian partner. Um, China and Tajikistan held bilateral military exercises for the first time in 2016. And it was an exercise that involved 10,000 troops, which for a country as small as Tajikistan is, is, is a really considerable effort. But the focus of this alliance um, is about counterterror. It includes a counterterror center in Dushanbe um, that helps the Ministry of the Interior and the Chinese Ministry of Defense to cooperate. And just as an example, um, as, an, a, as a connection to that uh, counterterror system, um, the counterterror center, excuse me, China did provide $15 million to build apartments for military officers in Dushanbe that are connected with that center. So China comes with resources. China's building this center. China is getting involved in Afghan security, and it's doing it together with Tajikistan. Partly, this is an extension of what was already happening through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Russia likes using the SCO because when there's going to be cooperation, Russia likes to compel China to do it multilaterally. Um, China and Russia both have a kind of preference for bilateral relationships with each of these states because, of course, they have so much power relative to the states. I think what we're seeing here is a reflection of real Russian concern about the future of Afghanistan. Um, engaging China in counterterrorism in a limited way 
um, is not optimal from the Kremlin's perspective. Uh, but there is enough concern about Afghanistan um, that they're willing to consider it. Most scholars regard the civil war in Tajikistan, which which unfolded for years um, as part of the Afghan civil war. Um, so there is a real clear sense that the Tajik-Afghan border is porous enough, the ethnic groups overlap enough, that the problems are there. Um, but the one, the issue on which Russia is most willing to give China space in security and in counterterror um, is really the issue of the Uyghurs. Throughout history, when the Chinese-Russian relationship was at odds, the Uyghur community used that to their advantage to move back and forth between the border. Part of one of the underlying assumptions of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is that the two states want to be in step together in their management of what they see as the Uyghur problem. If we look out in the future based on current trends, what do you think is going to be the the balance between competition and cooperation between Beijing and Moscow? Uh, there's a lot written about friction uh, between the two. Uh, do we? Do you think that this is going to increase in the future? Do we end up with more competition? Uh, would it be healthy competition or strategic competition between uh, Moscow and Beijing? Or are there issues that they will find uh, that they can work together because their interests converge? Well, first of all, we have to bear in mind that um, in recent years, so in the, in the last 10 years, let's say, um, Russian oil exports, which were originally down 5%, very low levels, China is now the market for 30% of Russia's oil. And China is expected to be a hugely important market when um, Power Siberia comes online next year. So even when there are going to be tensions in the relationship, um, China is increasingly Russia's important market. And that's going to shape what the tensions are about. Turkmenistan probably should be concerned about Russia-China cooperation in energy because there's little question that Turkmenistan is going to pay the price for that in the sense of Russia is going to insist on being a larger supplier than Turkmenistan, Russia is going to insist on a better price than Turkmenistan, and as soon as China has two large overland supplies of gas, they will leverage that. Uh, Russia considers China a, different custom, a difficult customer because they always want the best price. They're always arguing and pushing price down. I think that Turkmenistan is at a real disadvantage here because I think that when China is trying to improve relations with Russia, it's going to give Russia favored access to its markets in order to give an economic cooperation component to the relationship. It's true that Russia considers Central Asia its sphere of influence. It's true that um, there are some issues on which Russia will push back. Uh, there probably are some red lines, particularly concerning security issues, military cooperation, and intelligence issues. Um, but frankly, Russia has not paid a lot of attention to Central Asia. And a lot of the relationship that Russia has with Central Asia is predatory, but they get away with it because it's relationships with the individual leaders. And so in terms of great power competition, there's definitely 
some implicit problems underneath this, but Russia will continue to work the special relationships it has with the individual leaders, and its interests are very much in security and intelligence realms rather than in economic. And the Chinese interest in the economic realm has real potential for Central Asia because now they can finally access a market. Are the Chinese also developing personal relations with leaders, and do the Russians see that as threatening? I think they're trying. I think they're at a soft power disadvantage in that respect. Um, when we look at um, Chinese involvement, economically they're very welcome, but there is no Central Asian state that doesn't worry a little bit about that and doesn't seek to have other things mixed in with it. Um, there's still a lot of Russian language. The push in these states, particularly Kazakhstan, when they're pushing to add a language, it's English. It's not Chinese. Um, and this lives more in popular legend and film than it does, I think, in statistical reality. But the persistent cultural fear in Central Asia um, is that China is there for their women. And, and you see this played out in, as I said, in, in anecdotes, in popular jokes, in film. There is this real fear um, what do the Chinese want from us? And, 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 and they really do believe it's their women. Well, with the shortage of women in China, uh, that, that's not surprising. There might be actually some truth uh, to that. So finally, let's look at the role of the United States. What role do you think the U.S. should play in this region? And do you think that the U.S. policy has gotten it right? in recent years. Seems to me U.S. has not been um, extremely active uh, in Central Asia. Uh, do the Central Asian states seek a greater U.S. role? Uh, could the U.S. be a viable partner in development in the region? And, and if the U.S. were to play a more active role, then how would that affect the power dynamics in Central Asia? Well, we have to disaggregate here because the U.S. government is not heavily involved in Central Asia. But Chevron is arguably the most important corporation in Kazakhstan. Um, and that relationship um, has really shaped. We tend to see Kazakhstan as an important place for investment. Um, Chevron has been uh, very powerful in shaping energy events in the region, um, and it will continue to be. So I think that the, the corporate interests uh, remain. And that does suggest that the United States has an overwhelming and a continuing interest in rule of law. Um, being able to set up contracts, predictability, um, competing of contracts and the way contracts are honored. Um, I would suggest that the main thing that the United States is good at, our comparative advantage in the region, um, is again what um, scholar Cooley calls the software. China's very good at building the infrastructure at the hardware. But the rules, the regulations, and even quality of hardware uh, vary significantly based on those countries' ability to negotiate, to get a contract, to enforce that contract. Um, and the United States has been working long and, and effectively um, in some nations of the region on just that. In fact, um, Kazakhstan, in a very unusual relationship, picked up the tab for USAID to remain in Kazakhstan long after we would have otherwise graduated Kazakhstan, they paid for it because they believed that how to set up other industry and that how to set those rules of the game that the United States was very good at that. Um, I do think that 
helping the Central Asian nations understand what is in their long-term interests in terms of infrastructure and trade and helping encourage them to build for that is our comparative advantage. We do see, and this is to the credit of the Central Asian states themselves, but in recent years when the World Bank assesses doing business, the Central Asian states keep getting a mention as most improved. Now that there's more flow of goods across the countries, there's a clear incentive to reduce corruption, to set the rules, um, to set the patterns. And that's what we're good at. And that's the role I would like to see us um, continue in. And then the other issue, and this is sort of a curious one, but um, I'm not sure that the United States wants to get deeply into this, but I see it as, a, as an area where the Central Asian states have a certain frustration. And that is China helps control and monitor their internet space for them. And China manages, I, I'm, China, first of all, China shares software and ideas with them about how to manage their information spaces. And so they do follow Chinese best practices for the management of the information space. Russia, on the other hand, scours their internet, does a lot of internet intelligence about terrorist organizations, about separatist organizations, about threat. Russia gives the Central Asian states reports, but will not give them access to the raw data. So the Central Asian states are very eager to better understand what are their problems, what does this data look like, how do we get better at understanding what's happening in our own information space. Um, and so there is an appetite in Central Asia for help in thinking about that public media space. Now, we have to approach it with great caution, of course, because um, our biases as Americans about what should be included in that space and how freely it should move are very different from China and Russia. But there is some opportunity there to, to help these states think differently about that space. Fascinating. Um, great discussion. We've been talking with Dr. Teresa Sabonis Health, Professor of National Security Strategy at the National War College. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. And I should reiterate that uh, the opinions that I expressed here are my own and don't represent the position of the, uh, of the U.S. government, of the Department of Defense, or the National Defense University. Thank you.